Well, before I get to my sermon, I just want to thank Bill so much uh, for his prayer this morning. Uh, Alice and I have spent the weekend uh, just making some of the funniest mistakes. We uh, drove all the way across town. I drove all the way back to our house. It turns out I had taken her car keys, so that meant I had to drive back at about four in the afternoon, which you know is the best time to be in Austin traffic. This morning, I left, I came here, I always come early just to get prepared and settled. She calls me and sa she says, did you leave your briefcase at home on purpose? Or so I drove back and exited and came back and I just felt so discombobulated this whole weekend. And I just appreciate Bill so much for making us pause, reflect on the state of our hearts this morning, recognize God's character and how both of those things do not have to conflict with each other. I have felt discombobulated, that's the word I chose, and all I know is that God is good, even when I'm confused, even when I'm flustered. And so I just want to thank Bill. It's so obvious when someone is aware of the Holy Spirit. It's so obvious. And we can see that in Bill, and my prayer is that I would have half of the awareness that Bill has for the Holy Spirit, so I just wanted to thank him this morning. Um, we just read uh, the story of John the Baptist's death, and we've been in this series uh, for, this is our third week, uh, we've looked at John the Baptist's birth, his, his life and his ministry, and finally uh, we're finishing the series with his suffering at the end of his life, his imprisonment and his death. And so I, I just want to think this morning about Christians and suffering, and I want to wind all the way back to the Apostle Paul. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he was held in house arrest in Rome, basically awaiting his death. Uh, it wasn't clear exactly when he was going to die, but he knew it was going to come sooner rather than later. Now, in the middle of his imprisonment, in 64 AD, a fire started in the city of Rome and just destroyed everything in its path. When the fire was extinguished six days later, 70, 70%, of Rome was in ruins. Imagine after just a week of fires in the city of Austin, three-fourths of the entire city being rubble and ash. That's what happened to Rome. Now, ancient historians at the time blamed the infamous emperor. Most modern historians do not blame him. What matters is who was blamed at the time. Nero, the famous ruler of Rome, blamed the Christians. He said this newfound you know, religion by these fanatics who worship Jesus crucified on the cross, surely they're responsible. They don't participate in Roman culture. They, they must hate Rome, and so surely this fire is their doing. First, a few Christians were arrested, and they were tortured until some of them, just wanting to be done with the torture, claimed responsibility for the fire. And so an immense persecution broke out. This is when Paul and Peter were both martyred. And some, some Christians, this is how brutal it got. They were dipped in oil and lit on fire like torches for the city streets. Now the big question is, why did that lie work? Why did people buy into this? Why did they think, oh, well, obviously the Christians did it. Well, one historian just put it like this. They were a class hated. They were a group already despised. They were already unpopular. And so 
Who cares if they're actually responsible for setting the fires? That doesn't matter. They're just a good set of scapegoats. That's why this lie works. Now, if you grew up in church, you might have heard about the Roman Empire persecuting the Christians, and, and you might have heard the fire in Rome as this famous example. But the fact is that persecution of Christians has not been the exception that proves the rule. In fact, persecution has been consistent wherever Christians have lived. Here's just a few examples. When Muslims conquered the Middle East and swept across North Africa, all Christians in their domain were demoted to second-class citizenship. In the late 1700s, early 1800s, the French Revolution took hold of the whole nation of France. Clergy were killed en masse. They were deported out of the country of France. In the 20th century, under the USSR, churches were decimated. I looked at one book that said there were 54,000 Russian Orthodox churches in 1914. 25 years later, there were 200. So many churches had been destroyed. Wherever Christians are, wherever they have been, they have known what it's like to be persecuted. And we're talking about this. We're talking about suffering for Christ because we see John the Baptist suffer. Now, it's technically not true to say that John the Baptist is the first martyr. That title goes to Stephen. But John the Baptist did suffer and die. And in such a similar way to Jesus, it's not a coincidence. Christians have always seen him as a pioneer of suffering. He is a forerunner for us. He shows us what it's like to undergo pain for God. Now, why does this matter? It matters because no one, no Christian in the 21st century can say, when I signed up to follow Jesus, I didn't know I'd have to suffer for him. We can't think this way. We can't speak this way. It is not an option for any Christian. We see John the Baptist suffer. We see Jesus suffer. And we've seen Christians suffer for the past 2,000 years. This is not an option for us. But the good news is that there's something more to suffering than just anticipating its coming, dreading the fact that maybe one day we will in the future suffer for Jesus. Something in the experience of suffering for Christ shows us why Jesus is so important. That's why we're looking at John's end to know what it really means to suffer for God. Okay, so we're going to go back to that first verse of Matthew chapter 14. If you have a physical Bible with you, get that out. It's the, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 14. Uh, we're going to go back to that very first verse. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the verses on the screen. First three words of this verse say, at that time. What you need to know is that Jesus was well into his ministry at this point. He's preached the famous Sermon on the Mount. He's been performing miracles. He's teaching, working wonders. And reports about this get back to Herod. So at that time, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, reports get back to Herod. And he says, first thing he says in response to that is, this must be John the Baptist. Now, Matthew kind of spoils the ending of this story. He has been raised from the dead, implying that John is already dead at this point. And Herod 
is so scared about what Jesus is saying and doing. He thinks it's so similar to John, even though Herod is the one who killed him. He says, this must be John the Baptist. He must be raised from the dead. And for this reason, these powers are at work in him. Then Matthew, after summarizing this, flashes back to how all of this transpired. And apparently, it all started when John had the audacity to criticize Herod's marriage. Now, to fully wrap your head around what's going on here, you need a little bit of background. Herod the Great was the ruler of uh, Judea when Jesus was born. And he had a lot of kids, some of which he killed because he was a sociopath. And these sons were always vying against each other for power. Now, Herod Antipas, who you see uh, up there, he had a first wife. We're not exactly sure who she was. His half-brother, Herod Philip, married a woman named Herodias. It's not helpful that all of them have the same name, okay? But this is what happened. They both got married, and then Herod Antipas and Herodias both got divorced in order to marry each other. If you look on this, these dotted lines, this means in-laws divorced and got married to each other, okay? Now, fun fact, Herodias is also the daughter of another son of Herod the Great, meaning this is also his niece. The audible groan that y'all just did was spot on, okay? This is his niece and his sister-in-law and now his second wife. John has the audacity to say this one sentence, it is not lawful for you to have her. Understatement of the year, John the Baptist. Thank you so much. It is not lawful. It's also deranged and gross and wicked. We could think of a lot of different words for this, but John the Baptist has the gall to say, Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her. Now, Herod immediately knows what he wants to do. He wants to kill John for this comment, but he can't. Because the crowds love John, and they think John is a prophet. And that's politically bad news for Herod. And so he doesn't want to get sideways with the masses and the crowd. So all he does, he just settles for imprisonment, okay? Now, while John is in prison, Herod has a little birthday party. And to continue in the theme of gross, what happens is that his new wife's daughter dances for the crowds. And it pleases him. We have no idea what that dance was like, but come on, we're all aware that this is disgusting. The picture of Herod Antipas is being painted very clearly here. This is a despicable man. And he makes a promise in response to this, his niece's, also his second wife's daughter's dance. He says, ask me basically for anything in my kingdom and I'll give it to you. Now, Herodias had coached her daughter, had already had this idea. It must have been a plan for some time because this daughter knows exactly what she's going to ask for. She says, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. Now, we're told that the king is grieved. Herod is sad. But we know this is not for the right reasons. This is because of political risk. But we're told that out of regard for his oath, and for his guests who are at the party, who heard him promise this, he commands it to be so. And out of, out of all the details we have in this story, we know very little about John's actual death. We just know a soldier walked into the cell, 
and cut off his head. And to pour salt in the wound, they made, they put his lifeless head on a platter on display. We're told that John's disciples came and took the body. They did the best they could. They wanted to respect and honor him, so they bury it like all good Jews would. And then they go and tell Jesus. And we didn't read this verse, but this is one of the most human verses in the Bible. Jesus hears about his relative John the Baptist die. He's in the middle of ministering to people, and we read that he withdraws from the crowd to a solitary place. He has to grieve the death of his friend, John the Baptist. Ever since this gruesome day, John the Baptist has been a model for Christians all around the world. But I just want us to think about an incredible truth about John the Baptist's death. This has stuck with me ever since I read this passage in preparation for this sermon. John suffered for Christ before Christ suffered for him. Have you ever thought about that? Don't skip past this. Don't move on quickly. Without ever seeing the example of Jesus suffering on the cross, without ever reading this, these stories in the Gospels, which we have the privilege to read, John suffered before Jesus. And I don't know if you can tell, but John's suffering and Christ's future suffering have a lot in common. They were both popular with the crowds because of their life and teaching. The Pharisees specifically dislike and question both John and Jesus' authority. Herod Antipas kills John and Pontius Pilate kills Jesus, even though they both express concern about the crowds. They go against their better judgment to kill innocent men. These are not coincidences. John is the forerunner of Jesus in life, and John is the forerunner of Jesus in his death. And John's suffering is a challenge to all American Christians in the 21st century. Now look, right now we're not facing violent persecution. I don't foresee that. But here's the truth. For Christians today and in coming generations, following Jesus will not improve your status. Faith is not going to make you popular. It's not going to improve your resume. It's going to make you less desirable, less respectable, less valuable. Now, best case scenario in the coming generations, I think, will be misunderstood. But worst case scenario, I think we're going to be seen as a nuisance to be set aside and ignored. I don't think we're going to lose our heads, but we are going to lose influence. Now, you can disagree. You can say that prediction is not going to come true. That's okay. At the very least, I think everyone in this room could agree that John challenges what might be an implicit faith in the prosperity gospel. Now, a lot of people in this room would say, I don't, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. I've seen those preachers on TV, and I reject what they say. But I think a lot of us actually have an implicit faith in the prosperity gospel, and I include myself in that, because all it really means is this. Jesus, I'll follow you if you improve my life. Make my life easier. Make my resume better. Give me better status. Make me more comfortable. And if you don't do those things, I may not want to follow you anymore. But John the Baptist lives by a totally different gospel than this. 
John the Baptist had to believe deep in his bone the actual gospel, which is following Jesus is better than life. The prosperity gospel says, Jesus, I will follow you if you improve my life. The actual gospel is that following Jesus is better than life. Now, I think this matters to all of us, regardless of our age or stage in life, whether you're 80 and you're praying for your grandchildren's faith, whether you're 38 and you're trying to raise your kids and teenagers with faith, uh, whether you're 18 and you're deciding whether or not you should have faith and put your trust in Jesus. All I want to say is this is the gospel and the prosperity gospel is false. Do not sign up to follow Jesus, to be a social climber, to advance in society, and especially don't do it to be exempt from suffering, because that is never promised. I love the way Esau McCulley says this. He says when Paul, Paul is supposed to be the second word on here, when Paul wanted to encourage Christians, he did not say, your breakthrough is right around the corner. Instead, Paul helps them to make sense of their suffering in light of Christ. And then he quotes Paul himself, if we suffer with Christ, then we will reign with him. Suffering for Christ is not something we just have to dread or begrudgingly accept. We can actually find joy and grace in suffering for Jesus. We actually see this in the Acts of the Apostles. There's the, one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is in the book of Acts. A few of the apostles are imprisoned by the religious authorities. They have been preaching about Jesus and saying he's the Messiah. And because of their preaching, they are considered to be a threat. So they are put in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opens the prisoner's door and brings them out. And the same temple police go the next day. They don't see the apostles in jail, so they go looking for them. And they are already teaching in the temple courts the very next day. So the temple police find them and they flog them. They're beaten and lashed and whipped, and they are told, do not speak in the name of Jesus, and then they're let go. And then this happens. As they left the council, they rejoiced, because they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name, and that is the name of Jesus. And so, every day, in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Basically, the temple police say, you can't teach and preach about Jesus. And they say, we're going to teach and preach about Jesus. It is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit to not just accept suffering for Jesus, but to rejoice at the opportunity to do so. It comes from a desire, not just to receive gifts from him, but to suffer for him. I love what Bill said in the prayer. I just want to know him. Don't you just want to know him more? And part of knowing him more is being open to suffering, being willing to receive burdens just to be like him. Because he is better than life. One of the most amazing, incredible examples I've ever seen of this in church history is from a Catholic priest named Maximilian Kolbe. He was a priest in Poland when Hitler came to power. 
He was one of the few Catholic priests who actually remained in his monastery. And after the town that he lived in was captured by the Germans, they arrested him in 1939. Now, they were willing to release him, and they did in December, but they asked him to sign a list recognizing his German ancestry. He knew exactly what that meant, and so he refused to, to sign the list. After he was released, the first thing he did was starting, he started to shelter Jews. Over the course of the next few years, he sheltered over 2,000 Jews from the Nazis. Eventually, in 1941, the monastery was found out. It was shut down by the German authorities, and Kolbe and four others were arrested by the Gestapo. You can see he's wearing the famous blue and white stripes of the camp's prisoners. He was taken to Auschwitz. And at the end of July in 1941, there was a prisoner who attempted escape. That prisoner was caught and brought back. And so the deputy camp commander decided to pick 10 men. He wanted to make an example of anybody who tried to escape from Auschwitz. And so he put 10 men in an underground bunker to starve to death. They were selecting men at random, and the Nazi guards picked one man, and he cried out, my wife, my children. Maximilian Kolbe volunteered to take that man's place. He knew that for the next couple of weeks he would be starved to death. Each time the guards would come in to check on the ten men, and he would always be standing or kneeling in the middle of the cell looking calmly at those who entered. After the other nine men had been starved for two weeks, only Kolbe remained. And because the guards wanted the bunker emptied, they gave Colby an, a lethal injection. The prisoner guards say that he raised his left arm and calmly waited for them to kill him. Christians have done this for the past 20 centuries. They have not just accepted suffering. They've gone to a whole other level, a supernatural level, of welcoming it with what can only be described as supernatural serenity and peace. Now, I know if you hear a story like that, you've heard preachers tell stories like that before, and you think, well, that's way beyond me. How could I ever be like that? How could I ever accept something so painful, so excruciating for Christ? My prayer is that these stories wouldn't be discouraging but would be inspiring maybe we wouldn't be afraid when we experience suffering that we would actually have courage from the holy spirit to face whatever comes this can actually happen in all of us the holy spirit can make us to be the kind of people who rejoice at being counted worthy of suffering for the name that's my prayer for all of us that whenever we suffer for Christ, we would not just accept it, but welcome it. To be like Peter and John as they left their flogging. Because they thought, oh, we're counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so overwhelmed even at the thought 
of suffering for Christ. The pain that so many Christians have undergone, it just seems so overwhelming, and we, we just think, well, we don't have what it takes. And help us to recognize that that is true. On our own, we do not have what it takes. We don't have the power. We don't have the energy. We don't have the will on our own to be faithful, to endure suffering. That's why we need your Holy Spirit. We need the same Holy Spirit that was in the apostles, the same Holy Spirit that was in Maximilian Kolbe, the, the same spirit that was in so many martyrs throughout church history. Lift our eyes to you. Help us see that we shouldn't follow you just for you to improve our lives, but to recognize that you're better than life. Your glory and your majesty and your light are so much greater than this temporary life. Father, help us to not just accept these things, but to rejoice at the opportunity to just know Christ more, to be more like him. Father, help us look at John the Baptist's life and his death as an example. He did exactly what you wanted him to do, and he said exactly what you wanted him to say, and for that faithfulness, he lost his head. Father, whatever suffering comes our way, we want to be faithful to you. No matter what, give us your Holy Spirit to do exactly that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.